presence of God transforms lives and heals hearts. Let's learn today truths on how we can access His presence and release heaven into our daily lives. Welcome to Manifest His Presence with your host, Dr. Candace Smithyman. Well, good day, everybody. I'm looking out at a beautiful day here in Florida, and uh, it's the end of June, June 12th, June 29th, and uh, we're going to continue on our journey here. We're following Jesus's trip, last trip from Galilee Galilee to Jerusalem, Uh, and uh, I titled this today, Kingdom of God Reigns. It's not rain like coming down as a storm. It rains as in the powerful one. He's the ruler. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Oh, Father, we are grateful for this day and we thank you for this day. And uh, we're coming at you, Father, to ask for guidance about understanding this journey you had made uh, to Jerusalem and how you were talking to the people and that we interpret this properly, Father God. So we ask for your help, or your patience, your guidance, your wisdom with understanding, Father, and we thank you in the mighty and matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus. We thank you, Father. Amen. So if you remember, this is the third, uh, third in this series now, and we left off last week with Jesus once again giving a warning via using a parable concerning a fruitless fig tree, and that was at the beginning of Luke chapter 13. So I want to begin today reading the next event on how Jesus is going to demonstrate that he is, in fact, the fruitful branch of Israel, while the current leaders are a barren branch that need to be cut off. So let's, let's dig into this, the Word of God in Luke chapter 13, starting with verse 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. All right, so here we go. Here we go again, folks. I mean, if you've been following along the last couple of uh, messages here, Jesus had several confrontations with these religious leaders of the, the Jewish people. And, and notice how frequently, if, you, if you've been paying attention or go back and just look at this, How frequently Jesus is using the term hypocrites. He's using it a lot. And in this latest situation, we hear, we're reading about a woman who is ailing. Now, she's symbolic of the remnant of Israel. Okay? I mean, as we just read, she is bound by the Satan. 
But Jesus came to bind the strong man and free the captives in his house. So it's this woman needed the hand of God's favor, the hand of God's grace on her. Now, in, in the bigger picture, this once again shows us that Israel is bound by the Satan and could not save itself, but needed the healing hand of Jesus Christ. But the Jewish leaders rebelled, which resulted in their doom. So this, this kind of correlates to, if you, if you know uh, scriptures, you know the Psalms, this, this correlates to what was shared, for instance, in Psalm 20. Here's Psalm 20, a part of Psalm 20, verses 6 through 8. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointing. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. In other words, this says that the unbelieving Jewish nation would look to the kings of the earth and all the political and economic powers of this world instead of the Lord's anointed. The, the language that we're hearing of Luke here parallels that of the psalmist in, that we just read. I mean, in Luke 13, 13, the phrase, she was made straight, also appears in Psalm 20, verse 8, in the phrase, have risen and stand upright. Or however, whatever version you that translated, they, they, they use the same Greek word, anortho. This, it means raising up and straightening out, only comes about by God's initiatives. The, the saving strength of God's right hand. In this story in Luke, Jesus literally lays his saving hand upon the woman and frees her. She is then freed to glorify God. So what we, we have here is a good old confrontation between the leader, the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus. Now, we, we don't know for sure. I'm speculating here, but I would imagine this leader is probably a Pharisee. And what he does is he makes this confrontation with Jesus public immediately, right? And he attempts to use scripture against Jesus because it, because it is against the fourth commandment to do any work on the Sabbath, and healing is work, which further implies that Jesus has broken a commandment. That's what this synagogue ruler accuses Jesus of right away. And see, we tend to assume that this passage is highlighting only the issue of violating the Sabbath. And, and, and once again, this is another attempt by, uh, you know, this leader of the synagogue, probably a Pharisee, they're trying to trip up Jesus. But folks, we see this time and again, it's a waste of time. Because Jesus escapes by emphasizing God's mercy over the heartless synagogue leader, synagogue ruler. But I, I don't want us to miss the deeper issue revealed here in what Jesus is doing and saying. And it's like many things Jesus does and shares. And many times things that are, they're under the radar. What Jesus is doing is under our radar and we don't really pick up on it. 
The deeper issue, folks, is the rebellion of the Pharisees in their failure to see the larger calling of Israel. We, we, we can't forget, we shouldn't forget that a major purpose that God gave the Jews the law was for the intention of being a witness to the other nations so these other nations would see God's wisdom, glory, and righteousness within these Jewish people, right, following these instructions from God and, and how, their cult, how the Jewish culture operates, and so that these other pagan nations would repent and bow down to the God of the Jews and then follow the Jewish people's God. That's the big picture. That's the thing that goes under the radar all the time. This, the witness is exactly what is properly displayed in Jesus' healing of this woman. For she immediately praises God, as do the other people watching this and witnessing it. Then what Jesus does is he kind of doubles down on the, the Pharisees when he says, this act of mercy is not only allowed, but it's commanded. Even on the Sabbath, per, per what Exodus 23 verses 4 and 5 says or Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4, where God instructs, he says, bring the oxen or the donkey back to its owner, even if it's your enemy. So in this story, here in Luke chapter 13, Jesus is applying it to the Pharisees' own oxen and, and donkeys. These same Pharisees, however, would not even allow a member of their own synagogue to be loosed on the Sabbath, to be freed from bondage, let alone a stranger or an enemy. I mean, I mean, in other words, the Pharisees are, they, they, Jesus is calling them out on it. He says, you treat your animals better than you treat the people. And it was for this reason that Jesus had just recently condemned the scribes, condemned the lawyers, in, in Luke chapter 11, this theme just continues. This is what Jesus said to refresh our memories in Luke chapter 11, verse 46. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. <laughs> I mean, this is the big picture theme Jesus is trying to get across. And if that wasn't enough proof that Jesus got them, there's still, I mean, there's still another point we can bring up. This woman had been living bound in the sight of everyone there for 18 years. The Pharisees not only would not heal her, but could not free this woman. They had no power over the strong man, the Satan, in other words. The Satan bound them at will. And since this woman was a true child of Abraham, Jesus looses her from, Jesus looses, looses her from her bondage which, you know, for anyone seeing it that, that has eyes to see, right, it proves his power. And thus is a witness that God's kingdom is now present. Therefore, once again, this makes Jesus's presence a moment of decision, which is exactly what we've been shown the last, you know, few messages in this journey Jesus is taking, this last journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, in these parables and these stories that are recorded in the book of Luke. Jesus is saying, the decision time is now. Either choose me, and I've demonstrated my power over the enemy, or you will have to choose being satisfied in your own 
you know, pharisaical, Sadducee, scribe, lawyer, glory to the bondage and future of the enemy. I mean, it's, it's this simple. In other words, Jesus, if you reject Jesus, then you are actually in covenant with the Satan. So, you know, what's recorded here in the book of Luke provides just another piece of evidence that Israel is this fruitless fig tree. For, for Israel, it, it's barrenness, which is, which is really her refusal to bear fruit and her refusal to the one who does bear fruit right? Which is Jesus. This decision, though, would mean that Israel would soon be left barren, which is another way to say Israel will be left desolate. So this, you know, confrontation over healing on the Sabbath is an opportunity that Jesus uses for an object lesson about the kingdom of God. And Jesus continues this object lesson with the next parable about a mustard seed and leaven. Let's let's get back into scripture here, Luke chapter 13, starting with verse 18. So here we go. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. And again, Jesus asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. All right. This mustard seed and leaven, these parables were also recorded in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 43, along with the, the wheat and tares parable. This is where those parables are at, too. And those parables illustrated that the kingdom of God would be starting small, but would grow into something large and spread everywhere. Now, now here in the book of Luke, this is a different time than when Matthew recorded these parables, but it's Jesus teaching the same parable. In in Matthew's gospel, the audience is a multitude gathered on the seashore. But in Luke here, the audience is still a multitude gathered but it's in a synagogue. So these these are separate incidences. They're not the same instance. And and, and frankly, this should not surprise us, I don't think, because Jesus is traveling all over, right? And preaching and teaching everywhere he went. I I think it's very likely that Jesus is telling the same messages and parables a few times, and it's just in different settings throughout his journeys these three and a half years. In fact, at the end of John's gospel, we are told that Jesus did many other things that aren't recorded. But again, I don't lose the big picture here as the message and meaning of these parables were the same in both cases. In, in Matthew 13, Jesus declares the end of the old covenant age and announces the new age to come. The mustard seed and leaven parables illustrate what to expect as this new age takes place of the old age. This is giving us a way to apply this in the bigger picture understanding. Okay, then when we look here in Luke's account of telling these parables, Jesus is bringing that big picture message in more clarity with a specific confrontation. 
Jesus had shown very explicit proof of his case for why the old covenant age was ending soon. It's Jesus, he's sharing that the Jews had perverted the law and their witness and had subjected themselves to the service of the Satan in the name of the law. It, it was as if Jesus is saying, I've said, I've said this before, this time I'm hoping you'll pay attention. I think that's what I, I'm trying to get across here, that he's doing this in, in Luke here of 13. He goes, I'm say, I said this before, it's recorded in Matthew probably a year or two earlier, but this time I'm saying it again, and I'm hoping you're paying attention because I don't think you have. <laughs> I mean, and don't miss the point that in each of these parables, the beginning of the growth is not only small, but it's invisible, which is directly what is going on with unbelieving Jewish people. I mean, folks, we have heard all through the Gospels that most Jews' idea of the kingdom, the new kingdom, right, was going to be horses and chariots and political power and economic power, which is something that is clearly visible. But the Messiah shows up, Jesus, and he's announced in multiple locations and multiple times with multiple healings multiple times casting out demons, that the kingdom of God was already here right before your eyes. Yet they could not see this, having eyes they could not see, right? And folks, Jesus has said that in the kingdom of God, the seed is buried. He's saying the leaven is hidden. The Greek word for hidden is kroptos. It's where we get our English word encrypt, right? Think about things that are encrypted. You don't really see it, do you? You, you, you sense it maybe, but it's not visible. In other words, there is the sense here in which the kingdom, the, the, the kingdom seed, that this leaven was present right there among the Jews and yet they could not decipher it. And I got to point out, in this instance, leaven is not being referred to as sin, as it is so often. This is one of the rare times that leaven is used to, to uh, in an opposite connotation. It's, it's used to get involved, to get into something, to make it grow properly, right? It's hidden in plain sight because they lacked the understanding. They lacked the code. And what is the code that Jesus keeps telling us? The code, folks, is faith. And Jesus exploited this in this confrontation by demonstrating his enemy's blindness, right? And there, there's, there's also a more subtle message going on here. I mean, there's so much in this stuff, folks, in the word of God, right? There's a more subtle message going on here. See, if the kingdom of God starts out small, that would then further imply only a few are part of this at the start. <laughs> oh, whoa. And this takes us right to the next teaching as Jesus is continuing this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Because after that, right after this point of he's saying these parables of the 11 here, someone asked Jesus, are only a few going to be saved? So Jesus shares some startling information in answering that question. Let's continue on now. Luke chapter 13, verse 24. This is going to be verses uh, 24 through 30 in Luke 13. 
So here, it, Jesus is gonna answer that question. And here we go, verse 24. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow gate for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are, la there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Okay. Now, so we don't make the mistake of assuming anything. We first must, I think we have to consider what does this person who asked this question mean, mean by, by using the term saved? What, what, I, what I'm getting at is this person did not grow up like you and I, where getting saved meant walking, you know, think about a, a gathering. You, you're going to a church. Okay, it, it don't, it, they didn't process this like, you know, somebody coming up front or raising their hand or admitting they're a sinner and they're gonna submit their life to Jesus now. Okay, that's not what was going on two millennia ago when this person said, you know, who can be saved? This person asking Jesus this question had no idea of our modern concept of saving souls, especially not before Jesus, the Messiah, had died, resurrected, and ascended. Saved to that person could have meant nothing like that, that we think it means. <laughs> See, the basic fundamental definition of the word is rescue. I contend that this person must have had in mind political and military rescue. I think this person had in mind what many of Jesus' hearers had in mind, which was a judgment and division was coming. So this question really shows us that this person had been taking Jesus' overall teaching seriously. This individual did by asking that question. And they asked if there were some who would escape the wrath to come. And this thinking this person had connects with the history of Israel, right? Throughout the history of Israel, whenever judgment came, there was always a remnant that was saved. There was always a remnant that was rescued. And God had explicitly promised this. In connection with the very command to use the law to witness to the other nation, God promises to punish, punish rebellion by reducing them to a remnant. That's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 27. The prophet Isaiah preached this very same theme. It's recorded in Isaiah chapter 24. The prophet Jeremiah records this very save, same saving of a few theme in Jeremiah chapters 42 and Jeremiah 44. In other words, I think this is a firmly established principle from Moses' Moses's time and into the prophets that in times of explicit covenantal judgment, 
only a few were saved. This means that whoever asked Jesus this question thoroughly understood Jesus to have been speaking of a great coming judgment and thoroughly accepted Jesus as speaking in the biblical tradition of an Old Testament prophet. And Jesus rewarded this person's frank question with an equally frank answer by saying, this is what Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. Whoa, I think too often we have fallen short in applying this verse. And one reason is we are way more accustomed to reading Matthew's version, which appears in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And in that context, in the Sermon on the Mount, it is too often taken as a general lesson about living for God. Now, what I'm getting at, what I mean is we process that a truly godly life is difficult and therefore only a few people will really live for God. Most people will take the easy way and wind up separated from God for eternity. So we need to strive to be one of the few. But remember, the Sermon on the Mount is itself a condemnation of the contemporary Jewish leaders and the contemporary culture of that time. Remember Jesus said throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, right? Which implies Jesus is saying, you have heard what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers are teaching you, okay? Then Jesus said this, but I say to you the way the law was originally intended by God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is breaking down in those case after case after case. It's a theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. If you read Matthews chapter five through seven, that's where the Sermon on the Mount is recorded. And so you'll hear that all the time. You, Jesus saying, you have heard, but I say. And it was issue after issue after issue. And Jesus, what Jesus is really doing is saying, they have violated the true law of God. I'm here to tell you what the true law of God is. And so this entire Sermon on the Mount ends with all the same themes of a coming judgment as we found in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, as Jesus is beginning this last journey to Jerusalem as he's departing Galilee. And over the last couple of weeks, including today, or the last couple of messages, including today, We've heard this from Jesus over and over. Jesus is talking about hypocrisy, the true nature of the law of God, the remnant, and he's telling beware of false prophets, beware the fruitful versus the unfruitful trees, and the shocked outsiders to the kingdom. In other words, we have often misunderstood the narrow gate passage because we've misunderstood the bigger, larger context. And secondly, I think we've often read Luke's version as teaching the same general lesson. lesson. But this lesson makes little sense in Luke's version, which focuses on the context of the time being short. These confrontations over the law the nature of the kingdom, and especially this person's question in Luke chapter 13, verse 23. All of this tells us that Jesus's response is a very pointed prophetic warning to Israel at that time. The issue is not as much an emphasis on how hard it is to live the Christian life, 
but rather how few of the Jews of that day would accept the truth before it was too late. Which now today in our current 21st century world is the exact same issue for any one of us living. The bottom line is accept Christ now. See, way too often we have missed the most important issue, I think, which is the timing. Jesus is often quietly asking us to do a deeper dive, a deeper look at things with these parables he's given, not just the obvious things. For instance, in this teaching about the way to heaven being straight and narrow, how, so how is a narrow or straight passage related to timing? I mean, Jesus has multiple times declared the time to be short, as we've, we've read, we've, we've discussed. So, I mean, let's just, let's think this through, people. What happens to a mass of people trying to enter a building through a single door? Just think about anybody coming into an event, right? They're all gathered outside, right? Passage is restricted. The masses bottleneck at that entrance. Only a few get in at a time, right? I mean, we've probably all been in that, a sporting event, getting in a larger crowd, to getting into a stadium, an arena. You got to go through the door, right? And many times, if there's something, an emergency, people start to panic. Right. If a fire breaks out or unfortunately, you know, whatever, it's just something happens and people got to escape and there's only one way they begin to smother each other trying to get out of the exit. And people have died due to restricted passage. Well, what Jesus is talking about here, it works the very same way, just in reverse. Jesus has been warning people trying to get into the kingdom. And he says there's limited time and the entryway is narrow. And the lesson, the takeaway for us should be crystal clear. Get in the door now before a great crowd forms and it'll and it's too late then, right? This is exactly what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, in his condemnation of the religious leaders. Jesus said there, he said, Woe to you experts in the law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. I mean, in the book of Matthew, right? That records how Jesus is even more explicit with this after his arrival in Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, 13, scripture says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Man, whoa. And in Mark's gospel, there is recorded an actual episode of this occurring. In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, I just read just a little bit. He says, four men carrying a paralytic to be healed could not get through the door because of the crowd, so they broke through the roof. <sighs> so folks, I mean, just these are all woven together. See, the overarching point here is that Israel had become door blockers already. And what Jesus has done is draw upon a biblical image from the beginning before the Jewish people were even chosen by God, right? The door to Noah's ark. All of Noah's family enters and the animals all, right? And then scripture says, the Lord shut, 
shut him in. Genesis chapter 7, 13 through 16 is describing this. And then it says, the Lord shuts the door. So in other words, the salvation of a few means that all the others were shut out by God. This is exactly the type of judgment Jesus has been telling everyone time after time. Jesus says that many will seek to enter, but will not be able to. They will be knocking on the door and saying, we ate and drank with you, Jesus, and we, you taught in our streets. But, but Jesus says what will happen is, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Oh, wow. It is God himself himself who shuts the wicked out. And in Noah's day, those wicked men who ignored his preaching of righteousness banged at the shut door of the ark. The ark was a symbol of God's salvation for the remnant and God's judgment upon the mass of unbelievers. So it's going to be with the, the same thing with coming destruction of Jerusalem. Only those hidden in the ark of safety proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord would escape before the rains of judgment begin to fall on Jerusalem. Yet the late comers are going to ask Jesus to open the door for them, right? They're appealing to their previous encounters with Jesus, right? We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. In other words, this is the way Jesus is my buddy. We go way back. Yes, they had indeed eaten with Jesus, especially the Pharisees. Many times we see the Pharisees, right? Luke chapter 11, verses 37 and 38. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. But the people as well who had trampled each other just to hear Jesus, and yet many would end up rejecting Jesus. These would all be destroyed in the judgment to come. Wow. Now, it is important to realize that Jesus' portrayal of that moment of judgment is meant more as a warning for them rather than as a description of how it's going to happen. Jesus had already implied that the coming judgment would be just like Pilate's slaughter of the Galileans and the toppling of the tower in Siloam that was mentioned in the beginning of Luke chapter 13. In other words, there would be no actual scenario in the future where the Jews would get to argue why they should be let in. There's going to be no discussion. The divine reply would come in the form of rocks falling and blood spilling, and the locked out Jews would immediately have their wailing and gnashing of teeth. For the meantime, Jesus is clearly telling them why their current complacent and self-absorbed attitude toward religion was the very reason they would be condemned. If they did not embrace Jesus now, no appeal to their casual relationships to him in the past would ever suffice to save them from the great division to come. Oh, yes, Jesus would continue healing people physically and spiritually, but his time was very limited. He's only got a few more days. Very soon, he would experience ultimate rejection by Israel's religious and political leaders. And ironically, the Prince of Peace, Israel's greatest prophet, knew that he would die in the center of the world and be killed in the city of peace where so many of Israel's prophets had died before him. Jesus was a guy who was willing to, right? He limited himself. He became a man, right? So Jesus is a man who was willing to endure the rejection of the representatives of the nation. Jesus was willing to be rejected by the majority in this life and suffer in this life, knowing that he would be welcomed and accepted by God in God's eternal kingdom. So the question is, how about you and me? 
How about us? Oh, yes, we can go with the majority now and perhaps not suffer as much now, but suffer much greater loss later, folks. Or we can go against the majority now and perhaps suffer more now, but we welcomed into the kingdom of God. Here's the question. What are you going to choose? There are terrible consequences for regret, rejecting God's son, who is the only savior, the only redeemer, the only healer of humanity. Encouraging you to be part of the faithful suff sometimes it's turning into being oftentimes suffering minority. Tell others, tell Jews, tell Gentiles about Jesus and the narrow door. Teach others the truth. Do not be intimidated by the culture or religious and political leaders. We need to endure today. If you do, you will be part of the amazing growth of the mustard seed-like kingdom of God and the good leaven that will grow and grow and grow. You will be among the prophets of, of old and the faithful and, the, and those apostles and the Lord himself, and you will be welcomed into the everlasting kingdom. And everything you will have endured will have been for worth it and so much more. Hallelujah, and I hope you have a glorious day. God bless you. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.candicesmithyman.com, Facebook at Candice Smithyman, or Instagram at Candice Smithyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel.